Animals frequently show up in our dreams, and they usually represent pieces of ourselves that have qualities similar to the specific animal in some way. Because of that, the huge range of animals gives our unconscious plenty of symbols to choose from. So how do you decide what your dream's choice of animal is trying to tell you? From dreams of rats in a basement to rats in the shower, staring white owls to huge hawks in bird cages, I'll show you how to make sense of the language of dreams. Welcome to The Stuff of Dreams. I'm your host, Amy Lawson, MD, practicing pediatrician. I also have a master's degree in depth psychology, specifically in Jungian and archetypal studies. My goal is to connect you with your dreams in a more fun and meaningful way so that you can interpret the messages your unconscious is sending. I've gathered some more animal dreams, so it was time to do another animal episode for you. So I have two dreams from Reddit and then an interview with Stephanie Zachowski, a mythologist who's going to share one of her dreams with us, as well as how she worked with it and how it affected her life over the last few years. Before we get into the dreams, I just have to acknowledge that I haven't posted an episode in over a week now again, and I'll just tell you that it's been a bit of a rough time. You know, I'm learning a new job while still working at my old job. But even more than that, the fires are still going in this area, although they are starting to get under control. And many of you may have seen the news several days ago about how it basically looked like a Martian landscape on the West Coast, especially around San Francisco. And it was true and it was awful and it affected our mental state for a while. I woke up in the morning and it looked like night, but my body was telling me that it was morning and we looked out the window and it was this really dark orange-red color of fog down below and then smoke above. You could see the bright lights in everybody's windows, even though it was like 9.30 in the morning because everything was so dark. Even by noon, I was still taking pictures and the lights in everybody's windows looked so bright because there was almost no sunlight. And I realized that I was kind of connecting with it on some kind of deep archetypal primitive level because even though I wasn't in any imminent danger because the fires are miles and miles away from us, my body and my mind were telling me, this is scary, this is dangerous. And I just felt fear in my body, even though it wasn't really rational. And I think that's probably an unconscious more based on archetypes response because think about if this had happened thousands and thousands of years ago and humans had woken up and it looked like the sun forgot to come out and the sky was this blood orange red color they would have taken it as a bad omen that something really serious and threatening was coming and I think that even in my enlightened scholarly MD San Francisco living state you know I was in touch with that deep, primitive, archetypal fear that I could feel. So it wasn't a fun experience, but I did learn a little bit from it, I think. So it looks a lot better outside now. We've recovered a little bit. Psychologically, life's feeling a little bit more normal. So now I have the bandwidth to think about other people's dreams again. So let's get into it. Here's our first dream from a female dreamer on Reddit. And as always, I only use dreams with the dreamer's permission. I'm usually pretty good at analyzing my dreams, but this one has me truly stumped. I'm hoping someone here can help me figure it out. Last night, I dreamed that I was visiting someone who had moved to an apartment in a large city. The someone in question was a friend, but only in the dream. None of the people that featured in the dream are people I know in waking life. Anyway, I was hanging out in the living room area of this basement apartment, which was old and cozy, but not run down. We were having a great time and talking, but then someone screamed. I looked over and saw one huge rat running around, then another. They were large and black, but seemed more like pet rats in the sense that they weren't afraid of us and acted playful, not aggressive. One climbed up on a table and tried to jump onto a girl's lap. She freaked out, but the rat wasn't trying to bite or attack her. It seemed to want to snuggle up on her lap, but she pushed it away frantically. In the next part of the dream, I distinctly remember I was taking a shower. I was still in that apartment. I had turned around to grab something when I noticed a loose tile break away from the wall, followed by one of the rats. 
It slid to the bottom of the tub and started freaking out, which caused me to panic as well. As I was screaming and jumping around and trying not to step on a now wet, rather upset rat, the other one popped its head out through the hole where the tile had been. Again, both of the rats seemed fairly docile. The one that was in the tub was running around, but it never tried to bite me or crawl up my leg or anything. It just wanted to get away from the water. The other one had poked its nose out cautiously and didn't seem upset by the chaos. If anything, it seemed a little confused. I guess the strangest aspect of all this is that the only interaction I've had with rats recently was seeing a gif of a pet rat jumping from a table onto its owner's lap. That was a couple of days ago, and I wasn't upset or afraid by the rat. I don't have any pet rats, though they are cute, and my house is blessedly free of errant rodents. I don't have any friends who live in small apartments, and I don't know of anyone who's currently dealing with a rat infestation, thank goodness. As far as personal feelings toward rats, I'm kind of ambivalent. True, I'm made a little uneasy if I see a rat running around in the city, but I don't live in fear of them. I'm seriously puzzled, Reddit. Think you can help? Now's the time to pause if you'd like to try interpreting for yourself. So I'm sure that some of you, especially if you're afraid of rats, would look at a dream of rats in a basement and rats in a shower as pretty negative. But in fact, I think this is a really positive, encouraging dream. So let me tell you why. We usually start with the dream geography, so let's do that again. The dreamer tells us that the dream takes place in a basement apartment in a large city, and it's not where she lives, it's where a friend lives. So we have an apartment in a city that feels like a very busy populated area, and so her unconscious is seeing her psyche as made up of lots of different parts, lots of different people. They're all living close together in a city. And the fact that this first part of the dream takes place in the basement tells me that it's a little deeper down in the unconscious because it's down physically, meaning it's down metaphorically. So we're a little closer to unconscious things and digging into deeper areas of her psyche that she might not usually live in. And she mentions that the apartment feels old and cozy, but not run down. So that also seems like a positive image. You know, I can imagine a lot of dreams that would take place in a basement where it could be described as dark or damp or spooky or with cobwebs in it or there's no light down there. You know, basements often do have that negative connotation. So it seems very important that the dreamer includes that this setting felt old and cozy, but not run down. She's comfortable there. It's cozy. So that already tells me that her attitude toward those less explored areas of her psyche is a more positive one. She's not afraid of it. It's more comfortable for her than it would be for some people. So everyone's having a great time and talking and laughing, but then the dreamer hears someone scream and looks and everyone sees these two big rats running around. So what do rats represent? Well, rats are something that many people are afraid of. But the dreamer isn't, as she emphasizes several times. And I just want to say, as an aside, that dreams like this are much easier to interpret when the dreamer includes so many details about her thoughts and her emotions and her feelings during the dream and not just the basic facts. Because you can tell so much more when you have the attitudes and emotions to go on as well as just the events of the dream. So... Hint to you guys, if you're going to write in to me with a dream or post a dream on Reddit, include as many emotions that you felt during the dream as you can, because that's going to just get you more and better information. So back to rats. Rats are earthy, right? They live in the ground or underground. They can squeeze through holes. They're instinctual. They're not thought of as super smart animals, you know? I mean, I think they're kind of industrious, but it's not like they're smart, like crows or elephants or something, but they're instinctual. They can squeeze into nooks and crannies where other people can't go, and they can look for food and survive on scraps and things that others can't eat. You know, you often see rats around garbage cans or dumpsters. They're scavengers. They're able to make use of the scraps that other people throw out. And so symbolically, because of all that, I think they're much closer to the unconscious than our human ego or human consciousness with all of its thinking. These rats are symbolizing deeper, more instinctual, more agile parts of the psyche that seem other than the dreamer's conscious self. 
But then the next set of information is important because she says once she notices the rats, she sees that they seem more like pet rats. They seem rather domesticated. They're not afraid of people and they're acting playful. They're not being aggressive or trying to bite. Um, One of them even tries to jump into somebody's lap, which that person was afraid of. But the dreamer thinks the rat wasn't trying to bite or attack. It just seemed to want attention, to want to snuggle, to want the human warmth. And that attitude of the rats and her attitude toward the rats seem really important because the rats just want to play and they just want attention. So to me, they represent some part of herself that's coming up from a little deeper, a little closer to the ground, a little closer to the unconscious that wants some attention. And it doesn't want to be aggressive. It just wants to play. It wants to be close to her. It wants to be seen and maybe understood. And so I think that the rats represent something that she has repressed a little further into the unconscious, but something that's not dangerous or attacking and something that is trying to come up now and be in a closer relationship to her conscious. Then in the next part of the dream, she's taking a shower. And what can that represent? Well, showers involve water, and we often say that water is the unconscious, so a shower could represent bathing yourself in the unconscious or immersing yourself in it or being surrounded by it, going into it more deeply. Or a shower could simply represent a cleansing kind of ritual, getting clean, wiping off the dirt and the grime and the things that don't belong on your body or with you. So she's taking a shower and one of the tiles falls away and the rats come out. And the rats are not happy to be in the shower or in the bathtub. They're running around and upset that they're getting wet and trying to get away from that. And the dreamer is scared because the rat seems panicked, but not scared that the rat's going to bother her. She's trying not to step on the rats. But she seems very clear that The rat wasn't trying to bite her or crawl up her or attack her in any way. It just wanted to get away from the water. And I think this is a really important message, an important part of the dream, because even when she and the rats are put in what is theoretically a really scary situation where the rats are panicking because they're getting wet and she's panicking because the rats are upset and she doesn't know what they're going to do. Ultimately, they each refrain from hurting each other or attacking each other. And so to me, that's a message from her unconscious that when these things do come up, when the rats do come out of the wall or out of the woodwork, and it seems a little scary and different than usual, and like there's a potential for danger, that danger isn't actually going to happen. Attacks aren't going to happen. She's not going to get bitten. She and the rats are going to be able to be in relationship without harming each other. And so I think that this is saying that even if the process of confronting these more primitive or instinctual or shadowy parts of herself is difficult, uncomfortable, scary, they aren't going to attack each other or harm each other. The rats just want to be rescued and warm and dry. And so to me, this is just a great message of safety as she does this inner work and expands herself and gets to know these rats, these new parts of her psyche. So here's her response to me. Thank you so much for this. It was very helpful and rather interesting. I've been trying to engage in mental and physical self-improvement recently, but for some reason, I've always kind of found myself drifting away from it. I think there's part of me that was reluctant to fully engage in this work because I'm a bit afraid of the commitment involved, as well as what I may find in my shadow self, so to speak. I woke up yesterday with a renewed sense of purpose, but this dream kept haunting me. I'm glad you were here to help me interpret it. It seems my unconscious was trying to tell me to keep on keeping on. Thank you so much. Ugh, what a great dream. And as you can see, if someone had just written the bare facts of what happened in the dream, they were in a basement and then some rats came and started running around the room. And then they were in the shower and some rats came out of the wall and started running around. If you just had those bare facts, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that does not seem like a good dream. It seems negative. Things are coming out of the woodwork uncontrolledly. But because we have her thoughts and feelings and emotions and attitudes about the dream as she was describing it, it turns the dream into something that's really meaningful and comforting. And so that's one of the reasons I find dreams so interesting is the deeper you go, the more you can find. Okay, here's our next dream. In my dream, I was in the kitchen with my mother and my husband. 
Then we see a giant two-foot white owl standing outside behind our glass door staring at us. While I'm sitting at the table with my husband, the owl suddenly appears inside the house and is staring at me. I normally am very scared of animals, so I was scared in my dream as well. My husband got away from the table and was happy and chill as always, but I was panicking and asking for his help. The owl was still and just constantly staring at me. I tried to get him away from me, but I couldn't succeed. Then I slightly petted him, just like a dog, to make him like me, I guess. He was obsessed with me then and didn't let me go. Eventually, I managed to get up from the table and walk to my husband, and then the owl attacked me at that point, and I woke up with horror and heart beating loud. Do you know what this can mean? I read that owls represent spiritual things, but I don't know how to interpret. I'm at one of the most depressive times of my life, so I wanted to ask. By the way, I didn't see any owls anywhere in real life or on TV recently or talk about them with anyone. So this dream takes place in the kitchen, and the dreamer's husband and mother are there too, and there's a big glass door and an owl. You can refer to my mini-sode on houses and rooms in dreams to review what different locations in a house can mean. But in general, the kitchen represents a warm, inviting place. It's a place where we eat. It's a place where we talk to others and connect over a meal. It's a place where we cook and transform and do chemical reactions that transform food into nourishing things for our bodies. And so the kitchen is kind of like a a crucible. It's a, a place where good things can happen or bad things, I suppose. But it's a place where things change into other things and where chemical reactions happen. It's not a place of stagnation. So in the first dream image, the giant white owl is outside staring at them through the glass window. So at first, this owl is outside the house, meaning it's disconnected from her. It's not quite in the house that represents her psyche, but it's close and she can see it. So what do owls represent? Well, the fact that the owl is white makes me want to look more at the positive aspects of owls rather than the negatives, because there are definitely both in the symbolism of owls. But white in general in dreams tends to represent, you know, more the light side of things, the bright side of things, and black more the dark side, the unconscious side, the shadowy side. So even if you just think of owls from stories and fairy tales and how they're presented, you probably know that owls represent wisdom. They're supposed to be very wise. They also have really keen eyesight. They can even see in the dark. And that's when they usually hunt and catch their prey. The fact that they're night animals makes me think about them being more closely related to the unconscious, since day is more about the light of consciousness and night more about going deeper. Night's the time of dreams. And white owls, as birds who can fly and see well, also have connotations of the spirit and spiritual life. They can go above. They can keenly see from a broader bird's eye view perspective. However, they are predators. They have talons. They can hunt. They're not without that edge, that little bit of danger. So that's what I think the owl represents in this dream. It's part of the dreamer's psyche that relates to spiritual things, to wisdom, to keen sight and a larger perspective somehow. But her attitude about the owl is a bit telling because she says normally in real life she's scared of animals, but in the dream she was scared of this owl as well. And so she's a little scared of that part of her psyche that is capable of those things or that is desiring some of that more spiritual and wisdom connection. But eventually the owl is inside the house and still staring at her. And her husband gets up and goes away, isn't at the table anymore, and he doesn't seem scared. He's just kind of chill. But the dreamer is panicking and asking for his help. She's trying to get the owl away from her, but the owl isn't budging. He's just standing there and staring. And then she reaches toward him and pets him a little bit like a dog to make him like her, she says. And then once he got that little bit of attention, she writes, he was obsessed with me and didn't let me go. So that seems really telling that she's afraid of the owl. She's trying to get him away and he won't budge. But then when she shows him just a little bit of affection, he loves her. He's obsessed with her. He doesn't want her to stop. 
So it's really easy to make friends with this part of herself if she'll do the work is what that's telling me. If she can overcome her fear somehow and reach toward it and befriend it, the owl is going to help her and stay with her and spend a lot of attention on her too. Then she says eventually she managed to get up from the table and walk over to her husband. At that point, the owl attacked her and she woke up scared. And to me, the change in the owl's attitude seems to be caused by the change in her attitude. At first, she's sitting and petting the owl and giving it attention. But then once she gets up again, tries to get away from it, tries to move toward her husband or toward her masculine side and away from the owl, the owl becomes dangerous again and attacks her. So that part, the moving toward the husband part and the fact that that causes the owl to attack seems consistent because often spiritual pursuits and pursuits of, of wisdom and perspective are considered a little bit more in the feminine realm of going deeper and going into soul. And so if she's going to stand up and purposely move more toward her husband or the masculine, the owl is going to sense that as moving away from it and that causes the attack. So in general, I think the message of this dream is that her unconscious wants her to turn toward something that she's afraid of right now, because if she befriends it, it's going to help her grow in spirituality or in wisdom. So her response to me was, that was really meaningful. Thank you very much. I recently keep hearing and reading and encountering messages saying I should be less dependent on the material and mortal world to get less fixated with everyday problems of this world, etc., and I was trying to avoid this message, fearing that I would fail at that. But maybe that's what I should accept and work on. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this isn't an easy dream, right? This is a difficult dream that kind of challenges her to do something uncomfortable. But sometimes that's the message that our unconscious thinks we need to hear. So I wish her all the luck with her explorations. So this week's guest on the podcast is Stephanie, who I met, well, didn't we meet in Dallas at the Hillman Animals Conference? I think yes. that's when we first met, but she and her two friends founded a lovely mythology conference, the Mythologium that I've been at the past couple of years. It's been super fun. She went to my school, but is already done with her dissertation and has her PhD. So I'll let her tell you a little about that. But she has a dream that she's going to share with us and hopefully it will teach us all something. So hi, Stephanie. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Anything else you want us to, to know about you before we get into your dream? So yeah, yeah. And I'm going to say it again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I think this is a fantastic podcast you've got going here and I love the discussion that's happening. I am Dr. Stephanie Zachowski. I am a co-founder of the Faith and Graces Mythologium. I also do marketing for a startup tech company and uh, kind of really enjoying mixing mythology and marketing. And then I'm, I'm looking into doing some courses for women, some small women's groups about myths and kind of finding meaning and kind of breaking through psychological barriers. This dream I'm bringing today, I was actually kind of lovingly became known as my dissertation dream. So I think it's an interesting conversation here to have today. <laughs> All right. So why don't you read your dream for us? I'll admit that like the first part of it makes a lot of sense to me. The second part I'm going to need your help on because it feels like it's going to be more about personal associations or something. So I'm excited. I'm going to learn from this too. So let's hear it. All right. My dream. I see a hooded figure carrying a large lantern. The figure is methodically climbing a stone staircase on the side of a turret. The hooded figure is climbing to a doorway. The turret is carved from the stone of the mountain behind it. I am within the cave-like turret. On the ground is an enormous bird. It looks like a hawk, but it is huge. One talon is twice the size of me. It appears to be dead. Beside it is a knight in full armor. The knight also appears lifeless. As I stare, I realize they are both within a massive metal birdcage. I feel sadness and I feel loss. Hmm. This dream just feels so like deep and archetypal with the imagery, doesn't it? Yeah, it was one of those dreams that came and, you know, in the morning as I was writing it out, I was like, wow, you know, that was a dream. 
Yeah, that's the kind that when I read dreams on Reddit, people are like, I just woke up from this. I don't know why, but this feels super important and I'm posting it here right now. You know, it's like sometimes you just know that they're important, even if you haven't really gotten into it yet. I always like to start with just the dream geography and like the setting of the dream and where that takes us. So it seems like we're somewhere ancient to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're in a castle, there's a knight. So that automatically, it makes me think about it's coming from deeper in the unconscious, more where where the archetypes are down deep. Is that your feeling too? Yeah, that really resonates. And the surface of the turret, you know, is castle, but it, but it's in a mountain. So there's mm-hmm. this aspect of even older, even uh, more earthy archaicness to it. We talk about geography. A lot of dreams have a lot of people. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of activity. And this one was a time outside of time kind of feel to it. It was bigger uh, in some way, more kind of spacious. Yeah, the images are simple in a way. It, it seems like it almost makes the dream more clear. You know, sometimes you get these really busy dreams with all these details, like you said, and people and movement. And it can be really hard to suss out what's really important from that among all the noise. And there's there's not a lot of noise in this dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's spot on, you know, because those personal associations with the people in your dreams, it's complicated and it's confusing. But like you said, these archetypal kind of images, you're like, okay. A bird, <laughs> you know, I can go into that a little bit more. Can, yeah, yeah. So the first line is, I see a hooded figure carrying a large lantern. And knowing that this is your dissertation dream, it feels like you're a, a, a small person and you have this little bit of light that you're going to use to illuminate something. I don't know. That's what I feel like about about my dissertation. Am I going to have a bright enough light to, to find something? So maybe it's just because I, I knew you had called this your dissertation dream. But that first part of it about climbing the staircase with just this little, well, it says it's a large lantern, but just seemed like the process of, of research and dissertation to me. What, what do you think? Completely, completely. It's that old image of that hooded figure walking, you know, I think it's in the tarot deck as well, that walking into that secretive space. And it's so part of that dissertation process where you just really have to go deep into these texts and all of this research you're doing and all of this stuff. But what I also found in working with the dream is it was also all about me going into spaces that I had not gone and um, was really hard. So that research, you know, that I was doing was bringing the light into those spaces. As you can see, it's kind of macabre. I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of death there, right? So it was kind of a dual meaning of that light. But certainly that small figure going to this massive thing was such a visual for starting that dissertation journey, uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in the the fact that the figure is climbing the staircase because in some ways I think of it as going down into stuff that's deeper and this character is going up, which I don't know, does that feel more more positive and accomplished or what can you tell us about that? That's really interesting. I, you know, and I was going back trying to look this up because I wanted to bring it to you because I just thought it'd be a really cool conversation to have with someone. I didn't realize how far back it went, for one thing. I mean, it feels so current still. And this was 2016. But also my heading on the email, I was right. I, I was a new analysis at the time. So I, I had emailed it to my analyst and I wrote bird in the underworld. But, you know, upon like re-looking through the dream, you're right. There is a climbing up, but it felt not that way. It felt like I very going down into, <laughs> into something. And certainly the cave-like feeling of being within that structure felt underworldly. You're still in the side of the mountain. So you're still underneath some something and very grounded, even though you're climbing up. So, so yeah, I see that. Yeah, but you know, the the dissertation piece of it is this really interesting balance between, you know, the critical researching space that's processing and thinking and, and, and doing all these kind of, you know, 
brainy things. And then that deep kind of soul sense, particularly with with our areas of study, there's a little bit of both and in that that works. You can't you can't help but work yourself and your research a little bit because it's part of, of what we're doing. And so, you know, that lighted figure probably in all <laughs> its hope was going up and into this <laughs> idea of like illumination and all this. But the reality is we were going into an underworld space of depth you know um and and it's worth it (laughs) but hard did you say depth or death depth but i I mean it's really both yeah usually when people ask what i'm studying and i say depth psychology first they're like death psychology i'm like no but well it's kind of sort of related yeah (laughs) sometimes no i want to say one thing about that because I'm not sure I've talked about that on my podcast, but you know, I come from the realm of science research where you really do, when you do research, you take yourself out of it, right? The observer is not a part. Mm-hmm. We're like objective and we're manipulating things or researching things and collecting the numbers, but it's not about us. It's about the objective scientific data. And that's one of the biggest flips for me about now I'm doing depth psychology research and like I'm an integral part of the research and it can't happen without me and I'm like the the vessel for it or whatever and it's just such a different way of looking at things but feels so balanced to me compared to the other part of my life yeah I just want to explain that for people yeah (laughs) no I think it's totally fascinating and I think your dual backgrounds make you just really interesting to, to talk with about these things because you know you do come from two worlds. And I think a little bit about, uh, you know, how Freud gets split into kind of this really uh, direct analysis and and uh, we're going to give you a prognosis. And then how you can also take that same idea about psychology and go into this dream space. And there's tension there. And I think uh, it's interesting. To me, it feels like even more of the meat of the dream is in that second part. So I want to get into that. What, but what? But I want to give you a chance first. Is there other things that you want to say about the first part right now that we didn't get to yet? No, I think I think you know the ancientness. I think all of that mythic. It's it's quite mythic that uh, setting. So I think we did that. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about the bird, the huge bird. Give us more of a sense of what that looked like, what it felt like, what yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I really had to spend a lot of time with this image to get close enough to it because the largeness and the intensity of it was uh, a little hard to process. Like, what is going on here? So like, what does it feel like? What does it sound like? How is it, you know, these kind of really sensory ways of entering into the image to try to get a sense of what on earth is going on here with this, you know? And became, you know, through associating that it was, I can't help but go into like the mythology of, of birds, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the resonance of that and kind of if my own background and my dissertation topic, which I, I can unpack all that in a little bit, but I'm trying to stay really with this bird image, but the, the wings and the flight and how connected that is in so many mythologies to soul, to spirit to uh, that direct connection between, you know, something higher, something beyond the earthly plane, and yet also still of it. And so larger than life, you know, this this thing and is a part of me, this image was mine given, you know, arrived. <laughs> and, and yet somehow I, something I had killed it, you know, this powerful creature that has always been known as this kind of connector being was dead. Oh, so you felt like you had killed it, not just that you found the bird dead. Yeah, yeah, it it was dead. And uh, something, you know, I think that had to be a little bit more beyond, now that you say that, upon reflecting with it. Because as I told you, I was in analysis at the time, so it was really working with this image of like, why? Why was this bird dead? And dealing with the reality of it, like the imaginal space of really going into that death and almost revivifying it, but connecting like what mechanisms had, had killed that spirit feature in me, <laughs> you know, that mm-hmm. image, not feature, but yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's going on there. And then there's the, the night, but the night isn't you. The night is separate from you. Is that true? I would say at the time I thought everything was separate from me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It felt like a visitation of sorts. 
I think through working with the images in that dream space of realizing that, you know, everything that was manifesting had some aspect of me in it, I could begin, I did not feel as much affinity with the night, (laughs) but it became that warrior energy, right? That protection energy that was in me. That was a really uh, big part of where I had come thus far was that protector <laughs> to, to get me to Pacifica. I mean, as you know, it's a journey to, to get there. So mm-hmm. there's that warrior piece, but that warrior had harmed <laughs> this powerful being somehow. And and so it was kind of re-examining that relationship. But I mean, you know, knights have a pretty amazing mythology as well, you know. Mm. Knights of the Round Table, the sword that can cut through the, you know, uh, just the power of the warrior itself and and the hero's journey alone. So I didn't feel anger. I didn't feel any of these things. It just was really kind of stepping into what are these images representing for me? Mm -hmm. And I have a question before we get into the birdcage part. You say that you realize that both the bird and the knight are within a massive metal birdcage. Are you the you in the dream? Is that in the birdcage too or not? I wondered. Yeah, you know, that's interesting, right? Because the the observer in the dream, who is that person (laughs) doing that? You know, when you kind of think about it, you could be, there's multiple me's and at least observing and the gaze, but you know, I would be like the fly on the wall in the, in the dream itself. I mean, it was kind of like an aerial view and then I'm all of a sudden I'm in. I have no role to play in the dream itself. I'm just the observer. Okay. And I think the level of removal from the imagery itself was telling in its own way of how mm. disconnected I was to those mechanisms. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. That's another thing I don't think we've talked about on the podcast, because usually I just say, you know, the you in the dream is kind of the core you, like the, or the conscious you, the part of you where you usually live. But there are some dreams where you feel like you're not really in them or you're you're not a player. You're just observing. And and yeah, I get that feeling from this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I want to know more then about the the bird and the night and and what you decided because this was the part of the dream where I was like, huh, this one isn't obvious to me. Not that I'm so not not that I can read every dream no matter what, but I was just like, wow, that seems like one that I wouldn't answer on Reddit because I would need to know too much, you know, need to ask too many questions before I could understand. Sometimes I cheat and just answer the ones that I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I get that one. (laughs) Right, right. So, so yeah, whatever you're willing to to share about this, I I wanna I wanna know how it acted in your life, and I don't know what whatever else you are comfortable sharing. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Well, I mean, full disclosure, I was in union analysis at the time, so I didn't know what it meant either. You know. I knew animals were big from the Hillman Conference and the studying of dreams and any depth psychology know those kind of primal energies that we seem the psyche represents in animal nature. So, I mean, I knew there were big aspects of it. I did not know what it meant. And I certainly didn't have the wherewithal to like interact with it the way that my psychoanalyst kind of had me doing. But what became apparent after (laughs) a year or so was the you know, the hawk was very much associated with my voice and a lot of difficulty speaking that voice. And that voice connected to um, mythically birds are often heavenly beings. You know, sometimes you see it in different mythologies, these winged kind of half human, half winged creatures that are psychopomps. They're able to kind of traverse realms and, and move around different spaces. I am less attracted to that idea of a heavenly creature in an earthly space being kind of contained in this birdcage. But I do think it was a soulful, spirited creature being contained by enculturation. Mm. And the working with that piece of uh, the unenculturated being that just needs, well, is wanting life and and, and to fly mm-hmm. and, and trying to kind of revivify that aspect because this bird was, it, you know, eventually in working with active imagination and interacting kind of with this creature, talking with it, right, imaginatively, I was able to bring it back to life and really kind of work with it. What is flying? What does flying feel like? What is the power in that? 
how how does that you know and so really ultimately the bird is still mythically imaginatively very removed from society i mean you know it's, mm. it's up high in the mountains it's looking over what culture's doing looks like a blip on a map it's patterns it's you know there was a distancing from it but for me it was tapping into that very otherworldly type space that kind of archaic primal space that was part of what i needed <laughs> in my dissertation writing as a whole so can I talk a little bit about how the mm. dissertation overlapped with the bird? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to know more about my other question, and I can move this around or whatever, but like I want to know what what kind of personality the bird had. So will that will that get into it too? Yeah, yeah. So you mean like kind of in the active imagination space? Yeah. 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 So this really deep wisdom would come from the voice of the, the bird image. Mm-hmm. And I felt, you know, I kind of was looking back over some of that before this. And, you know, my voice at the time was this anxious, <laughs> I know nothing. How can I write about these things? I can't do it. Everybody's going to think I'm an idiot. You know, I was these horrible critic kind of spaces, right? And you can just see this jabbering of the space I was in at the time. And mm-hmm. the the wisdom of, of this bird image was calm, removed from that space of, of needing all of that affirmation, all of that, mm. really just up above seeing the patterns of the world. Mm. And that if you want your thread to join those patterns, then use your voice. I love the image of, you know, one talon is twice the size of you in the dream. And the fact that the bird has a talon makes it makes it a predator bird, right? So it's kind of this like there's energy in that. And the predator birds have that keen eyesight usually, right? So that they can can hunt. And so I'm seeing that in in the image of even what the bird looks like, too. That's an interesting point because there was fear initially with it, like interacting with this image Mm -hmm. of. Well, bigger than me. And certainly, you're right, it's a bird of prey. And and yeah, I think uh, there's danger <laughs> in that. But it was also a little bit, I mean, that is what I was writing into, too, as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. so tell us more about, about your dissertation topic then. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I think it's, and I think this is interesting, we talk about synchronicity as to why this dream kind of became this like touch point for me. As I said, I was in analysis and a lot of times when I was in that gridlock or that spiral of, of, you know, the blank page was too much, you know, my analyst would be like, what's the bird saying right now? And it would pop me out of that space. It would put me back into that wisdom space to really kind of dig deeper. Like, why am I doing this? Mm. What's this, you know, what's the deeper piece of that? So in that way, it became this, when you speak to the kind of the fierceness of the bird of prey, became this kind of guardian mm. of the project itself. So my dissertation uh, topic, I was writing about the uh, mythology of the whore of Babylon, which was a type, you know, apocalyptic, fierce, feminine image, dangerous, destructive. Uh, you know, you talk about all of these kind of topics mythically. And, you know, the dissertation went a certain way and, and very into certainly contemporary topics and its own kind of headiness. But in the depth of the dissertation, you know, that this, this being's kind of walking with me in it. And I, and I think like at one point uh, in the midst of doing the dissertation, uh, I had gone with a friend to London and uh, had gone to the British Museum. And I'm like, well, I'm writing about the whore Babylon. I've got to go to the Babylon section, you know? And so (laughs) I go up there to kind of check it all out. And there's that incredible image of that queen of the night, who is the woman, you know, she's got these giant talons down at the bottom and bird wings. Oh, Right, you know, she's called Lilith, and, and some series. It's a, it's a really famous image, and I knew it. I knew the image, but going up there and seeing the bird, I'm like, wow! Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of a sudden, there's like this deeper kind of resonance with that image at this point. And then I go down the hallway, and it's just these figurine and figurine and figurine of these bird creatures, um, half human, half bird, throughout that whole Babylon section. So really that image just stayed with me. It it stayed with me continually through writing, even to the point of when, um, you know, I was about to defend. uh, I mean, I live in Texas. There's hawks everywhere. 
not saying that that's not a common thing, but it was like the month before I was going to defend. I mean, the hawks would like swoop down over my car, mm. you know, they would like go around. Right. And, and I think like a couple weeks before I had one land in my backyard mm. and that's a little uncommon, you know, and, and it was a little bit of a synchronistic nod, like, okay, we're, we're out. Right. The image that was with them is, is now without let's do this. So I think like why I wanted to bring this train was just that power of how the imaginal space like came into my world in a really physical way. Yeah. Helping me through. Yeah. And the hawk in the backyard certainly wasn't in a birdcage anymore. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What about the what about the night then? You said that all of these Lilith type creatures were half human, half bird. So is that this image like there's a, a human in the birdcage and a bird or I don't know, I may be being too precise. No, I think um, to, to be completely honest, the night got left in the in the cave mm. <laughs> as far as the imagining further into it. Um, but I do think that warrior spirit, the night it didn't fit into the feeling of of that image, that queen of the night image. Mm. But I do, um, there's a role to play. I don't want to put the good, bad <laughs> onto the aspects of the dream. I think every image in that dream had a space and a role and a, an, important, an importance. In the dream itself, uh, I just think that the, the warrior had been a bit on overload. Mm. <laughs> too much power, too much... Um, protection and stepping in and stepping up and using my voice it took a real deep connection and still does really it's not like defending made that go away I mean um, it's kind of this constant interaction with my perfectionism and my need to be right and my you know all of these aspects that I kind of keep hitting up against they still are there it's not like the the dream didn't take them away (laughs) but it did it gave me a way to imagine it and work with it mm-hmm. in a different way. Right. And really a consciousness about it. Like, okay. in that spiral again, how do I tap out of that? Yeah. And even though, you know, we usually say that dream characters do represent parts of ourselves. Like it feels different to be doing inner work with a dream character. Like it's just enough other that it's almost easier to interact with that than feeling like you're having to fix part of yourself immediately. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's enough removal to give consciousness a chance (laughs) to kind of like shine a light on something. Right. I mean, there was a lot of unconscious material that popped up in my my work. And I think, well, I know working with the dreams helped that interact so that that could kind of stay here and I could work on the work itself in a critical, clear way. And it worked me Mm -hmm. in a different way because it was given the opportunity to. And I think that's particularly in our field of study, a unique opportunity for our research is leaning into that guidance of allowing it to go where it goes. Yeah, without us trying to muscle it in the direction that we think it's supposed to go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you have an idea, like, did the bird feel more masculine or more feminine, or was it really not along those lines? The more I, I wouldn't say I knew it initially, the more I interacted with it, it became very much a a feminine creature. Uh, I say that in fear that listeners will think feminine is, (laughs) was a fierce female Right. You know, it was a, a, again, it's that outside of culture kind of energy that uh, where destruction and rebirth are one. (laughs) Mm. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. We talk about masculine and feminine a lot on the podcast, but I don't think that I've really, yeah, because the feminine is about death and rebirth and cycles, whereas the masculine is more solar and, and, you know, constant. And I'm glad you pointed that out that, you know, that, yes, the feminine can be fierce, too, because I often find myself lapsing into the, you know, well, the masculine is the more aggressive and the feminine tends to be the more passive or not passive, but the one that takes more time and stuff. So I'm glad you reminded us about the the fierceness that's available there, too. Yeah, I think it's an interesting distinction. We think so much in terms of these ways, right? Masculine, feminine. And we carry weight with those terms. It's just an interesting thing, you know, in, in, in our psyches as well. Because um, now that made me start thinking about the night again, 
which was certainly presented in a masculine way in that dream for me. Even though if you think mythologically, you know, Athena is just as strategically a warrior as anyone else, Mm -hmm. right? But in this dream, it was very much kind of uh, the Arthurian legend type knight that is there to defend. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Weren't birds sacred to Athena somehow? Or, oh, was it the owl? The owl. Yeah. Not the hawk or something. Well, an owl is a predator bird too, though. So it still feels kind of the same family, right? Yeah. Owls, falcons, they're all of those really powerful bird type images. The phoenix, you know, and alchemy. And uh, yeah, there's a lot in the bird image. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how these few air quote simple images, which are actually not simple, but are at least not How do you even say it? They're not complicated, but they are because there's lots of layers. But anyway, these few images can there's so much that we can talk about, even just with these two images of the figure climbing and then the bird and the knight in the birdcage. Yeah, they're so awesome. And you know what else I think about dreams is it's like your personal. um, I don't know if somebody came and handed me a card with the image of a hawk on it and says, here's your hawk. You know, you're like, thanks. (laughs) But there's something about the arrival of an image in your dream that comes with so much emotional intelligence, a connection to it, right? That you can't, it's just really, like I said in the dissertation, when I would get so caught up in all of this rigidness, that image could bring me out and really pull me down into that sense of self again, really quickly, more than any meditation or any, you know, however many hot baths I took to calm down or whatever, you know, those images are, they're ours. They're, they're given to us by our psyches. And so it's deep connection. Yeah, no, I'm glad you're, you're modeling that for us. That's how I feel about my images too, as far as, I don't know, I just, I have this implicit trust and faith in the source of the images and, you know, my inner self and the unconscious and where they're coming from. And I've started to realize as I've worked with more people and their dreams that not everybody has that. Like some people are like, my unconscious hates me. Why is it sending me all of these images, you know? And oh wow. And, and I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that I was making the basic assumption that everybody would have that sense that the images were from a place of wisdom and support and knowledge of our deep inner self. So, so yeah, I'm glad that, that we're talking about this and you're modeling that deep faith about it too. So you ended your reading of the dream saying that at the end of the dream, you felt sadness and you felt loss as you worked with the dream. Did those, did those go away? It seems like that's what you're leading toward. Yeah. I would say that changed I think, you know, in the dream space, everything was dead. So I don't think I would have ever thought, well, you can, oh, you can kind of work with these images and in, in, in your imagination and, and really reimagine them. Again, this was four years ago. It took time to not feel that loss, but but slowly in, in doing everything, you know, the bird came to life as this kind of larger than life image. And so I think that loss went away. I I feel like I'm over-romanticizing the amount of hardness it took to get (laughs) to that point because it became so connected with my dissertation and the dissertation was tears and frustration and, you know, the one time you're on the bathroom floor crying and like, I can't do this. I'm not hearing this. I'm not. (laughs) There are these moments, you know, I mean, this is not an easy road. I think as the dissertation came to life, and started to kind of become its own thing. Like, okay, this is becoming something. So did the bird uh, kind of revivify and, and become this, okay, this is actually a living, in my imagination, but I've revivified this this thing I had somehow killed with my need to protect myself mm. from the world or what, you know, all of these mechanisms that I had to kind of go through to uh, do the dissertation. Yeah. So it sounds like the bird became a source of, of wisdom and of energy and of protection. Am I putting words in your mouth? No, you're totally right on. I mean, as far as this, like that inner sense of you're where you need to be at the time you need to be. And the, what you're writing is, is what you need to be writing. And I guess that's why I brought up the British museum and these other little space. It's like the more I imagined with this image, the more that image reflected in the world around me. Mm-hmm. And certainly I'm more aware I mean, because I'm conscious of it and I'm journaling with it. And then, so of course I'm more aware. 
but it also, every time I could see that it reaffirmed like, okay, this is the right time. This is the right place. This is what I'm here to do. That affirmation I needed to hear. It sounds very, that that's why the dream was in this mountain and part of the mountain. It's like connecting you to somewhere deep. It just feels very connected and grounded. Yeah, it was. Now that I say that, I feel like I've taken it so far. I've kind of taken it through a four-year lifespan. Well, no, but I think that's great. Most of the people that I'm working with their dreams are pretty new to this. And so we don't have that luxury of seeing how they change over time. I have started asking people if this dream continues to work on you, will you write me back and tell me how it's changing things? But I mean, my podcast isn't really for Jungian types. It's for (laughs) non-Jungian types trying to make a bridge and connect them with this information too. And so, so yeah, we usually are talking about the raw dreams and and what they mean right now. So I think this is a great modeling of how important dreams can be and how they can change us over time and they can change over time and the characters can change over time. But most importantly, they can change us over time. Yeah. So good. this is like advanced episode of the podcast about, you know, if you stick with it long enough, look what you have to look forward to. (laughs) There you go. It can help you. And it's a part of you. Yeah. You know, even as far as the geography of the dream would slowly change. I got a rhythm down where I would journal in the mornings to try to get the writing flowing. And a lot of times that journaling would include, you know, this imagery. And so the geography of the mountain, you know, one day the cage was gone. It had just kind of disappeared. And then slowly, you know, as I'm writing with it and in the writings progressing, there's a tunnel in the cave now where like at some point I can see like, okay, the bird actually can fly out of this cave. It's not mm-hmm. trapped, right? But very afraid to do so, you know, kind of on the edge on the cusp wasn't, wasn't taking off. So this image really worked me mm-hmm. <laughs> as I kind of worked it, uh, moving through these spaces of this giant project. Yeah. No, I think you've expressed that so well. This has been fascinating. I really appreciate how we were able to talk about the dream, but also you and your life and your process and your dissertation and how how integrated and interwoven this all felt, right? It wasn't like a clinical analysis of a dream. It was situating that in your whole life over the last few years. And I think that came out beautifully. And I think that people will be able to learn a lot from this. What I want to say, which I think is interesting about what we were just talking about, the combination, is before Pacifica, I was in marketing. I am now back in marketing again. And so it's this interesting mix of mythology and marketing. Like I'm Mm. loving the way I can try to like mix these two things, right? In this challenging space of telling brand stories and telling stuff, but, but this knowledge base that I've kind of come in with. And I think when we talk about things like dreams, I think that that's a really interesting cross between, you know, you can work them completely in this other way, but then also this intermingling with stuff that's like tangibly in the world with projects we're working on, our businesses we're starting or whatever we're to podcast, you know, like whatever our project is at that time, how these dream images can kind of come in and help us in that space. And I think that's an interesting thing about dreams for me anyways. Yeah, no, it affects the, it affects our lens through which we view the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate your time of coming on and telling us all of these beautiful things so much. If people are interested in getting more information about you or how you use mythology in the real world, any websites or things you want to point them to? Sure, sure. So my last name's a mouthful. So you can go to stephaniezphd.com to find out more about my work. PH, just so people know. Yes, Stephanie with a PH. I'll put the link up on my website too. Awesome, awesome. And for the Mythologium, it's uh, myth2021.com. We're looking towards the future. So we should be uh, hopefully announcing some information on that soon. So yeah, please check it out. And again, thank you for having me. This has been such a wonderful conversation. You know, I was thinking before I got on here, I haven't been in that space of keeping up with my dreams lately. I haven't tapped into that. And this has been so inspiring to get back into that practice and that space to ground in this crazy year we're having. So thank you. That's the show for this week. In the next episode, we're going to talk about modes of transportation in dreams. And then in the following show, we'll tackle violence and violent images in dreams. So that should be an interesting one. 
As always, you can email me directly with dreams or comments at stuffofdreamspodcast at gmail.com. And I hope you will. I want to hear about your experiences with interpreting your dreams and what you're learning from this. Um, I would love to get feedback from people about how this has changed their perspective or helped them learn something else about their dreams because it would be super fun to read your messages on the air and you can help us all learn from your dreams too. Head on over to my website at stuffofdreams.fireside.fm to find show notes for each episode where I summarize the dream interpretation principles we discuss each week. You can also find lots of links there. Thanks so much for listening. And if you liked it, I encourage you to tell a friend about it this week. Let's get more people fluent in the language of dreams. Bye for now. And I hope you dream tonight.